Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey finishes teaching the story of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. If you want to learn more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Tonight's message is called The Golden Calf and the Last Straw. The Golden Calf and the Last Straw. So last uh, message, it wasn't last week. Last week, you guys were from Pastor Chris uh, on Numbers. But the week before that, we started in Exodus chapter 32, and we started looking at what everybody calls kind of the golden calf incident, right? Like everybody has a grid for the golden calf incident. If you grew up in church, if you watched Veggie Tales, if you had kids ministry at all, this is just one of the things that you learned about, right? Moses is up on the mountain, Israel's doing stupid stuff, and they build a golden cow, and they start to bow down and worship it. And then all we really know is, hey, don't do that. That's really bad. And then we can kind of move on. But what we found uh, the first week is there's actually so much more to the story. And if you remember, I started uh, I started off the message by explaining to you a very important um, Bible study tool, an important hermeneutic is the term is the terminology called a parenthetical. Do you guys remember that? Raise your hand if you remember that, if you remember the idea of a parenthetical. And a parenthetical is this, that when we're reading the narrative um, of the Bible, regardless of what book it is, sometimes you'll come across these parenthetical sections, these almost parentheses-like sections in the Bible where the narrative pauses for a moment and you go on a deep dive on something. And, And here's the thing is it can get kind of difficult to read the Bible when the parentheticals happen, especially if you don't know to look for them. And so Jen, this was really easy to get through because it was a very linear story with zero parentheticals. It was like, hey, here's uh, the creation of the world. Here's Adam and Eve. Here's Babel. Here's Abraham. Here's Isaac. Here's Jacob. Here's Joseph. And then we get Exodus and Exodus comes in and we go, okay, here's the story of Israel. Now here's the story of Moses. And it's been very easy to get through. But what we discovered last time is in Exodus 20, there's a giant four chapter parenthetical. And so you get to where Moses gets up on the mountain and he receives the 10 commandments along with several other um, aspects of the law. And if you remember the story, he, he gets, it's like four chapters of that law. And then we pick back up in, uh, I believe it's Exodus 32 or Exodus uh, 24. I'm sorry. In Exodus 24, Moses comes back down from the mountain. And if you remember what happens, it's, it's stunning. He tells Israel, this is what God says on the mountain. He speaks it. Israel responds with all that the Lord says, we will do, right? So they say, sign us up. We love the law. We love the covenant. We love the mission that you just gave us because that's where God tells them, hey, I'm taking you to the promised land and here's how I'm going to um, deliver deliver the people or deliver you from the people in the promised land. He gives them the vision for what's coming. And then Moses begins to write it down in a book and then reads the book and says, okay, I spoke it to you and you guys gave the audible yes, right? I'm putting it down in a book and we're going to read it together. And I'm going to make sure that we all understand what's happening. And they go, yes, all that the Lord says, quote, we will be obedient. And it's their very first introduction to the law. And it's not all 613 commands, but it's quite a few of them. But they're basically all based off of the Ten Commandments. And we've already gone through the Ten Commandments. So they say, all that the Lord has done, we will be obedient. 
And then Moses has this awesome dinner party. You guys remember that? Where, where God's like, oh, I love this covenant. I love the fact that you're excited about this covenant. So here's what we're going to do. Moses, why don't you go get Aaron? Why don't you go get his sons, Nadab and Abihu? And why don't you go grab 70 of the elders of Israel? And why don't you guys all come up to the mountain? And then what you get is this really stunning kind of like precursor to the Mount of Transfiguration where you have the 70 elders and you have Aaron and his sons and you have Moses and and they walk up to the mountain and they walk into the throne room found in Revelation 4. And they see the sea of glass and they see God sitting on his throne and all of a sudden God says, let's eat and let's drink. And they are standing there in the presence of God celebrating, having this really holy like dinner party with the Lord celebrating the very covenant that they just signed up for. That's important as we're looking at um, exactly what happens with the golden calf incident because it is not just Moses on the mountain looking at the sea of glass. It's Aaron. It's the 70 elders, right? It's all the leaders of Israel experiencing the same thing that Moses experienced. And so they come back down off the mountain and Moses gets called to go right back up. And so Moses gets Joshua, his assistant, the same guy who's going to take the land later on in the book of Joshua. They go up to the mountain, but before they do, Moses looks at Aaron and he looks at her. And he says, H-U-R, by the way, not like her, right? Aaron and her. And then he says, look at the 70 elders. And he goes, you guys are all in charge. And if there's an issue, go to Aaron. So he says, I'm going to go up the mountain. I'm going to go talk to the Lord. And so Exodus 24 ends with Moses going up to the mountain with Joshua. And then we get chapter after chapter after chapter of parenthetical law. And so it's important to know that because what will happen is you're reading it and it's very clear and easy to read because it reads like a story. And then Moses goes up to the mountain and all of a sudden it just gets really clunky and really hard to read. And so what happens is people just give up, right? Or they lose severe interest. They read it. They were checked out the entire time they read those seven chapters. They get to Exodus 32 and they forgot that Exodus 32 is the very to be continued portion of Exodus 24. So Exodus 32 takes place. Moses is now on the mountain. He's gotten the law. The storyline begins again. It says that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. And what happens, I'll read it to you right here in Exodus chapter 32. It says, now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings, which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God. And when it says they said, he's talking about the 70 elders. He's talking about the very people who were in that holy dinner party. He says, and they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, meaning the golden calf. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
And that idea of raising up, uh, rising up to play um, actually has uh, sexual content um, involved. That's the, the language that's being used. So they're, they're getting up, they're going to eat, drink, and they're going to fool around with each other. That's what's happening. And here's why it's so important to remember that it's tied directly to Exodus 24, because it was just less than 40 days ago that they had this amazing covenant with the Lord where they were like, yes, we love the law and all that the law says to do will be obedient. Then they literally don't make it 40 days before they are worshiping another God, breaking all of the commandments and they're sleeping around together. Not 40 days. And so last week we spent a lot of time unpacking why the, why the law didn't actually work. Why, when they finally had clarity on what they were supposed to do and how they were supposed to do it, how come they couldn't follow through? And we spent the entire message describing, um, going through Romans chapter 7, specifically to describe to you the purpose behind the law. That the law actually could never make you holy and that the law actually, though it is very good, when you put the law on a sinful heart and on a sinful nature, it becomes destructive and it actually makes you sin even more. Not that the law is bad, Romans 7 says, he says, no, but your heart is bad. That's why the new covenant is we need a new heart. And so now the Christian is no longer bound to the letter of the law because we have a new heart in which God has written the law upon our heart. We're no longer bound by the letter of the law. We're bound by the spirit of the law, the very spirit who is superior to the letter because he is the one who wrote the law. And so now you and I are led of the spirit, not of the letter. And so now we listen to what Holy Spirit says. And now, unlike the children of Israel, who when they hear the law and go, yes, sign me up, and then they fail miserably, now you and I, when we hear the law of the spirit of God, when we hear the words of God, when we hear God tell us to do something, what happens is there's a, there's a yes in our heart. Now we're now we're under compulsion. Uh, Romans 6 says that we're slaves to righteousness and slaves to God now. Before we were slaves to our sin. When sin told us to do something, we had no choice. But you and I, now we have a new heart. And when God tells us to do something, our heart says yes. And we don't do it perfectly. Amen. We all get that. But now there's a yes where there used to be a no. So that was what we talked about last week. Today, we're going to dive into the actual event of the golden calf. And here's how we're going to do this. We're going to look at three observations concerning the golden calf. After that, after the actual looking at the golden calf and what happens, we're going to look at God's response to Israel worshiping an idol. And then we're going to look at Moses's response to God's response. Because it's a very interesting exchange. Uh, it's one of my favorite subjects in the entire Bible. I, I just, I get, it's so rich. And uh, if we have time, we'll even look at Aaron's response to this whole thing. It's fascinating. Okay, so here we, here we go. Three observations concerning the golden calf. Number one, whew, God's leadership isn't always sensible. God's leadership isn't always sensible. Okay, I, I want you to trek with me on this because this is, this is probably the most complicated point to get across. So just, I'm gonna try very hard to make this clear and easy. Here's the facts of the situation. Israel has just received the covenant. For the first time ever, they know what they're supposed to do, what they're not supposed to do. For the first time ever, they know where they're going. They have a new mission. They have new vision. 
They have seen God for the very first time. Before it was Moses and before they saw signs, but this time they actually see God himself on the mountain. They're excited. Their, their, their mind says yes, but their, their heart says no. And just as they're getting new behavior, just as they're getting a new culture setting, just as they're getting new vision and new mission, everything is changed for them. You have to understand, here's what happens. Moses, their faithful and fearless leader, bails within like two days. So Moses comes and he delivers, hey, here's how we're going to live and here's where we're going to go. And it's contrary to everything you've ever heard. And, and I, you guys saw God, so you know that I'm not crazy. And they're like, okay, we like this. We'll go here. Yes, yeah, sure. But we're a little freaked out because this has been a really weird couple of years. Right? And Moses is like, awesome. I cannot wait to take you guys to the promised land. I'll see you later. And then like two days later, Moses is gone. In the time of the most important transition in the nation of Israel's history is the time that they probably need their leader there and he's gone. That's just a fact, Jack. That's what's happening right here. And if you are Israel, you are no doubt freaking out going, where the heck is our leader? You just told us about this grand mission and you were like, hey, I'm gonna take you there and then you left. This should read very differently. If I'm just looking at the facts, this story should actually read like Moses is a poor leader. Because I'm telling you right now, Moses is doing everything that every church leadership book will tell you don't do. The reality is if Moses had been there, there would have been no golden calf incident. Moses is a good leader. You think Moses would have let them throw all their gold in a fire and do a molten calf and, and go around and sleep around together? Moses would have, no, he certainly wouldn't. Later on, he's gonna start killing people for it. He gets really pissed. The reality is this should read like a failure of leadership. Because of course, the sheep are gonna do that. They're confused. They just saw God for the first time. They don't have all this history with the burning bush. They don't have all this history of God talking to them. What they see is putting, they're putting all their faith really in a man because he seems to be working signs and wonders and that man's now gone. And here's what happens. Now I'm gonna infer a little bit in this text. They start to complain. I don't think that's a stretch because we've showed they complain a lot. And they probably start saying things like this if they were going to use our language. Well, our leader doesn't care about us. I don't feel cared for in this moment. I don't feel seen. I don't feel heard. I don't feel like I have a voice. If Moses was a good leader, if he really cared about us, man, he would be right here with us. Instead, he's up there on a mountain talking to God. We didn't hear God tell him to go up to the mountain. He's bailed on us. That's how it should read. But it doesn't read that way, does it? It doesn't read like Moses is a poor leader and the, and the people are the victims. The way it reads is that Moses is the hero and the people are the villains. 
Your whole life, you've known this. Every, ever since you heard that story in children's ministry, you knew very clearly Moses, good guy, people, bad guy, right? Why? Well, we all know the answer. It's because Moses was doing what God told him to do. God said, come up to the mountain, Moses. And so Moses says, okay, I will go up to the mountain. Moses is being obedient. So therefore, he's doing the right thing. It's the other people who are doing the wrong thing. And I just gotta, I gotta tell you, man, uh, here's the thing about this. God's leadership is not always sensible. God doesn't always lead the way that we think he should lead. And he doesn't always lead our leaders to do things that we like. Now, here's the thing about you guys. I love the fact that I do young adult ministry. We've been talking about it um, at our leadership level a lot because here's the thing. I only get you guys maximum probably for like two years. Most of you guys will transition out of here before two years, maybe four, really probably at the max. But really, I've only got you a little bit of time in your life. And the reality is gatekeepers and gate city probably isn't gonna be where you land forever. You're probably going to go off and do other churches. You're going to go off and do missions. You're going to do YWAM. You're going to do circuit riders. And so I get, to, I get to like talk to you guys for just a few years. And I'm trying to equip you not to, to, for some selfish reason. I'm not talking to you about how you should respond to leadership because of gatekeepers. You're not going to be here for that long. I'm trying to help you because at some point you're going to go to another church. At some point you're going to go off and you're going to be under another spiritual leader. And if you're not careful, you're going to put expectations on that leader that God doesn't have. And if you're not careful, you're going to get really bitter because you're going to go, well, I don't see, feel seen, then I don't feel cared for. And therefore, that leader is obviously not in the will of God. And I'm just here to tell you that if you're looking at the children of Israel, Moses was doing exactly what God told him to do, which was, hey, come up to the mountain and come talk to me for a little bit. And all of the people who were saying, I don't feel seen, I don't feel cared for, I don't feel heard, I don't feel valued. If you really were the leader that God called you to be, then I would feel that way. They were the ones in the wrong in this situation. And we so often, we think, we think that it's like, we think, we forget, I think, that Israel, before they looked for another God, they looked for another leader. Their issue, guys, I'm convinced, was not that they wanted another God to worship. I think their issue was they wanted the real leader who was standing there before them, who would tickle their ear and do what they wanted. Let me read to you again. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they didn't say when the people saw that God was far off. When the people stopped feeling the presence of God, it doesn't say that. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron. Before they ever got another God, they got another leader. But Aaron, he's a good leader. Because Aaron listened to the voice of the people. When the people come and say, hey, Aaron, this is what we need. Aaron's like, absolutely, man. I love you. I'm here for you. You have a voice. I want you to feel cared for. I want you to feel seen. I want you to feel heard. And so Aaron does exactly what the people tell him to do. Aaron, now we all know that Aaron's the failure in this, right? Like we all get that, right? But let's be real. We all kind of look at leadership sometimes that way and that's how we respond. We're Americans. You know what Americans do? We do things democratically. Every, listen, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna hit this really quick. Um, the kingdom of God is not a democracy. Do you know what a democracy is? Hopefully, Lord willing, you guys know what a democracy is because you live here. In other words, we the people, 
We are the government. We elect people. We put policies into place. You work for us. That's how Americans think. Government leaders, you work for us. And sometimes we can think that about kingdom leaders. You, pastor, you, apostle, you, teacher, you, missionary, work for me. Your job is to care for me. Your job is to tend to my needs. Your job is to feed me. And we go, hey, when that's not happening, we'll go, oh, that guy, he wasn't a good leader. He didn't love well. Dude, I've been to churches, so I've been to so many, uh, I've, I've seen this happen so much in church, and guys, I've done it too. Now, you may be looking at me like I'm the leader, right? Now, I'm just going to tell you this. In my, in my realm, I am not one of the key leaders, all right? So I may be like the top dog in this little room, but this little room is like once a week, okay? I am not a top dog in Gate City, and it's really easy for me to think, well, wait a second, the leaders should be listening to me. According to this, though, they shouldn't. According to this, the leader who has the best approval ratings is the worst leader. Should you think about that for a second? So this tells me, I want to, there's two points that I want to hit on this. I think this is really important. Number one, some of you guys, you're, you're called to be leaders in the kingdom, like legitimate leaders, not like, like I'm a leader in my domain and I'm a leader at home. You're all called to that. But I mean, like you're going to have a position of authority over a flock of people, whether that is a small flock in a house church, whether that is a large flock in a giant church somewhere, whether that's a missionary team, whatever. You are called to a position of leadership within the kingdom of God. And what I want you to know is your approval ratings do not matter. The test of a good leader is not how much the people like you. The test of a good leader is are you being obedient? Because here in this moment, Moses is the right leader. He's doing leadership the way the Lord's telling him to do it. And it's requiring him to upset his people. Now, that does not mean on any level that I'm saying Poor approval ratings equal good leadership. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that's not the good litmus test, right? And if you're a Christian, you should probably care for people, right? If you're a Christian, you should love people. If you are a Christian, we should be slow to speak and quick to listen. That doesn't matter whether you're a leader, whether you're a follower, whether you're young or whether you're old. That's just the standard for all Christians, but some of you guys, you are already leaders in your domain and you're like, oh crap, people don't like me, but you're trying to do what the Lord's telling you to do. And I'm just gonna set you free. Do what the Lord's telling you to do. That's what matters. Don't be a jerk about it. Don't look at your people and be like, ha ha, I'm gonna do what God tells me to do and you can shove it. Don't do that. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you are not gonna be held accountable for how well people liked you. You're gonna be held accountable for how obedient you are. So that's those of you who are in this room and those of you, uh, or those, those of you in the room who you know, you're like, I'm, I'm gonna do positional leadership in the kingdom of God. Some of you guys, you have no desire to do that. That's awesome. That's great. You're like, dude, I'm just gonna serve at a local church. I'm gonna do whatever I can to just, just help the, the vision of the local body. I'm gonna work my, my nine to five job and I'm gonna minister in the mission, or in the mission field of the workplace. I'm gonna start Bible studies in the cubicle. I'm gonna, I'm gonna minister to the people at Subway. That's where I'm called to go. But I'm just here. I'm not gonna have a positional place of leadership in the kingdom. And I would just say for you, one of the things that's really important, I've said it, I just wanna, I wanna double stitch it, is make sure that you don't have different standards of leadership than God does. 
And what you're looking for in a leader is not necessarily someone who's going to tickle your ear, not necessarily someone who's going to make you feel good, although that's great, right? What you're really looking for is a leader who's strong enough to go against the current if need be because he's doing what God's telling him to do or she's doing what God's telling her to do. And you have to kind of relinquish a little bit. And I'm having to learn how to relinquish just a little bit and go, okay, you may be leading in a way that I don't necessarily like, but I'm going to trust Moses that you're doing what God's told you to do. Not two days later, I'm making a golden calf. Does that make sense? But the reality is, Moses is the hero. Moses is the one doing what God's asked him to do. All right, what's the next observation? Here we go. Aaron's biggest mistake came after his best encounter. Aaron's biggest mistake came after his best encounter. It's fascinating to me that Aaron's the guy up on the mountain with Moses. And he is having like a level 20 encounter. We're talking he's having the same kind of encounter, probably even greater level encounter that John did when he's caught up to the third heaven and he's writing the, he's writing the book of Revelation. Remember John's like, he's like, I don't, you know, he's like, hey, listen, I, I saw the sea of glass. Aaron sat on the sea of glass. Aaron is looking God in the eyes face to face and he's breaking bread with him. The most radical encounter you've ever had does not measure to what Aaron just experienced. And his biggest mistake of his life came just a week or two later. Isn't that fascinating? So here's what I should tell you. Number one, experiences don't always produce faith. There's a lot of people in the Bible who encountered Jesus. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people encountered the Lord face to face, felt the anointing of his teaching, ate from the very miracles that he was producing, and yet only 120 make it to the upper room. Just because you encounter the Lord does not mean that you're gonna grow in your faith. However, I will just say this. Sometimes an encounter can do what your theology can't. Just as true as an experience doesn't always produce faith, sometimes an experience can like button up all of your theology and it goes from something that I read about to something that I experienced that it becomes very real. And here's the deal. I think that probably did happen to Moses or to Aaron, but dude, Aaron has the most radical encounter and then just a couple of weeks later, he's caving to all of his people and he's worshiping an idol, but he didn't just worship the idol, he makes the idol. He gives a stamp of approval. You know that verse in the New Testament that talks about teachers will be held to a higher standard? Imagine for just a moment, if I was like, give me all your money, put it right here. I'm gonna shape it. I'm gonna mold it. Everyone bow down and worship that. That's good for you. That's right. That's God. I would like burn for that. I'm pretty sure God would smite me right here and there. That's a big deal. Yeah, that's what Aaron does. And he does it after being on the stinking sea of glass. And I read that and I'm like, Aaron, you're a moron. <laughs> like, what the heck, dude? You and I wouldn't be that dumb. And the Lord's like, yeah, you've been that dumb. <laughs> How many times, you moron, 
that you have sat and experienced me in dramatic and powerful ways. And then just a couple of days later, you're back in your pattern. You're back in your weakness. You're popping off. And I read the story of Aaron having this dramatic encounter in Exodus 24. And I see this dramatic blunder in Exodus 32. And I go, I think I'm in good company. Because here's the thing about this, guys. I love Aaron's storyline so much because if you don't know this, you're gonna miss it. Aaron is the very first high priest of Israel. So while Moses is on the mountain, He's getting the download for what it was going to take to atone for the nation's sins. And here's what God says. He goes, I want you to set apart for me Aaron, and it's going to be his lineage, and he's going to be the high priest who makes the sacrifices and atones not just for his sins, but he's going to be the one who atones for the entire nation's sins. In other words, the one who has done the absolute worst is the one who's been forgiven the most, is the one who God is going to use as his instrument of forgiveness for the whole nation. And he doesn't revoke that calling even after as big of a blunder as creating a golden calf and telling everyone to sleep around and bow down to it. He doesn't look at Aaron and go, okay, you know what, dude? Uh, I know all God's promises, they're yes and amen. This one was a little conditional. I'm going to remove your calling now. You've squandered it. He doesn't do it. He goes, I, not only do I forgive you, I'm going to use you to show the rest of the nation that if I can forgive the golden calf, I can forgive anything. Wow. And it's remarkable. And so you may find yourself like me and you've had some really powerful, dramatic encounters with the Lord and then you're right back to where you were before and you may go, oh God, you must, you must be so angry at me. Surely my, my destiny is thwarted. Surely you're looking at me going, gosh, how could you do that? How could you be so dumb? And I would just say to you, guys, God's so good. And if he didn't do that with Aaron, he's not gonna do that to you. So Aaron's biggest mistake came after his best encounter. Then here's the third point that I want to make. Israel's wealth was their God. Israel's wealth was their God. Okay, so I don't think it's any accident that the calf is made out of gold. Okay, it's wealth. It's wealth. Jesus has so many warnings about a wealthy Christian, really to a wealthy Christian. Doesn't say it's impossible, not at all. Solomon was super wealthy, although Solomon did not do really well, right? He did some good things, but he also did a lot of really bad things. David, super wealthy, right? It's not wrong to have wealth, but Jesus is super clear. He has a lot to say about the Christian who is wealthy. He has a lot of dangers uh, associated with that. You've heard like where Jesus is like, hey, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or like when the rich young ruler comes up to him and he's like, Jesus, I love you. I believe that you are the Messiah and I want to follow you. I want to give you my whole life. And he's like, okay, that's great. Listen, you're so attached to your stuff. You're going to have to sell all of that before you can follow me. And he goes, yeah, I can't do it. Or how about Matthew chapter six, Sermon on the Mount? 
where Jesus gives us warning after warning about not storing up for ourselves or, or treasure here on the earth, but instead to store up our treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. He has a lot to say about wealth. And I don't think it is an accident that the golden calf was made out of gold. It could have been anything. He literally could have been like, let's put some sticks together. Let's make a calf. Could have done it, but he didn't. It was gold. Here's the thing about the gold, guys. Where did it come from? Egypt. That's a great, great answer. Israel was a poor nation that was enslaved for 400 years and had absolutely nothing to their name. But God told Abraham in Genesis and God specifically tells the nation of Israel, hey, when I, when you leave, and you come out of Egypt, he goes, I'm going to repay you for all of the crap that you've had to endure. He goes, I'm not just going to set you free. I'm going to pay you back for everything. And he goes, and Egypt is going to line the stinking streets with gold. And it's all for you because I love you and I see your affliction and I'm for you. And so Israel leaves Egypt, the richest nation, though they're nomads. And they come to this spot and the very gift that was supposed to demonstrate God's faithfulness and goodness to the nation of Israel, they start to throw it in a pile, melt it down and make an idol and they start to worship it. What am I getting at? Oftentimes our biggest idols are godly gifts. Oftentimes the things that you will find yourself worshiping and putting your entire being around and putting all of your mental bandwidth in and giving all of your heart's affection, typically they're things that God gave you. They're gifts. Whether that's material things and God was really good to give you a, a boat or uh, fishing rods for me, right? I like to fish, right? Or I don't know, whatever you guys are into, a new PC, whatever, right? It's really easy to take something material that God gives you and go, oh God, I'm so grateful that you gave this to me. And then like two days later, it's a golden calf. You didn't realize it because you've forgotten all about the gift giver and you've made your life about the gift or it won't be a material gift. It'll be a spiritual gift. And we do this all the dang time in the church. You get a spiritual gift, you start popping words of prophecy and they're accurate. And you're like, oh, this is really good. And you start to focus on prophecy rather than the one giving the prophecy. You start to idolize the gift of healing. Or if you're like me, I'll idolize the gift of teaching. I don't want to just idolize it in myself. I won't just spend time trying to, trying to be a better teacher. No, 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 I'll idolize it in other people. That's what we do with spiritual stuff. We look at somebody else's gift especially a spiritual gift. And a spiritual gift is meant to provoke our hearts closer to the Lord. And instead, all it does is make us more focused on the gift instead of the gift giver. And so you need to be warned. God's gifts are, off, are often the very thing that we idolize the most. And so when God gives you something, now here's the deal, God's sovereign and everything you have, he gives you. So you can think about it like that, or you can think about it like in the actual moments where you're praying for something, whether it's a spiritual gift or something material, and God answers that prayer. I want you to remember, do not idolize it because it doesn't feel as wicked when God gives it to you as when it's like a sin. Wow. And so you, the, 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 the little check in your spirit it may not quite be there because you're like, well, God gave it to me. And so I would just say, make sure you don't idolize the gifts that God gives you. And make sure that you don't idolize the gifts that he gives other people. I think the golden calf is an allegorical, an allegorical warning 
about idolizing our gifts. So here we go. Let me give you God's response to Israel making a golden calf because it is, it's, it's stunning. Okay, so you can imagine they're down there sleeping around. There's a giant golden thing. They're worshiping it. Moses is getting the law and it's really good. Actually, this is where Moses is getting the 10 commandments, like the tablets of stone that we all know and love that go into the Ark of the Covenant. This is, this is where he's getting those. Well, these don't go in the Ark of the Covenant. He gets mad and smashes them. But you know what I'm talking about. Then the Lord stops giving him the download of the law and switches. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down the mountain at once for your people whom, I love that. I love what God's like, your people. It's kind of like the, you know, the parent who's like, like when my kids are acting up, Kristen's always like, uh, your child's acting up. I'm like, my child, it's our child. The Lord spoke up to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and they have worshiped it and they have sacrificed to it. They said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. That means hard-hearted. They are hard-hearted people. Now then, leave me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. This is my favorite part of the passage. I don't know why. It's fascinating. Okay. Moses is getting the law. God stops giving them the law. And he goes, hey, Moses, time out. Go down there. They're worshiping a golden calf. They're saying that that's the God who delivered them. You need to go down there and deal with this. And he goes, hey, by the way, leave me alone because I'm really angry. Don't talk to me. Don't come near me. Leave me alone that my anger may burn against them and I will destroy all of them and I will start brand new with you. And he says, because they are an obstinate people. Two observations. Number one, God sees what we cannot. God sees what we cannot. God looks at the nation of Israel and he makes a very clear declaration. They are obstinate. It means they're hard-hearted. When you hear the term hard-hearted, you should immediately be thinking about a central figure in the book of Exodus that we just talked about a couple of months ago, Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh's story? God would tell him, hey, let my people go, please. He'll spare you. And every, every warning, every word from God, what happens? Moses or Pharaoh's heart gets harder and harder and harder and harder to the point where even the angel of death comes and slays his firstborn son and Pharaoh still doesn't turn his heart to the Lord. And we often look at Pharaoh and we're like, he is the, the central figure that demonstrates what a hard heart can do. He's the pinnacle of the very hardness of heart that when God is giving him warning and pleading with him time after time after time that his heart continues to get harder, that, that he is who we don't want to be. And here's what we're seeing, guys, is the entire nation of Israel, for the most part, they're hard-hearted. They're hard-hearted. They're pharaohs. It's a nation of pharaohs. They have become the very one who has enslaved them for 400 years. 
You say, well, how'd they get that? How'd they get there? We've talked about this in the past, and I, I think the book of Hebrews clearly defines this for us. It says that their hearts were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that they sinned so much up until this point that like Pharaoh, every word of God hardened their heart even more, and they were full of rebellion. And so God sees what we cannot. Now, why is that important? Because Moses is getting ready to intercede for the nation of Israel. And Moses is getting ready to say, no, Lord, please don't destroy them. Moses is working with incomplete information because the Lord sees what he cannot. And here's what I want you to understand is God is perfect and he knows everything. And so that means every decision that God makes, he is working with perfect information. That means we who are working with imperfect information, we who only see a small sliver of what's actually happening, he sees the whole thing. And so when he says, I've made my decision, we don't question that decision. We trust him who's made the decision because he's got the perfect information. I don't. But Moses doesn't do that, unfortunately. So the first point concerning God's response is that the Lord sees what we cannot. The second is that in God's perfect knowledge, he decided that it was best to destroy the nation and begin anew with Moses. Given the fact that God sees everything that you and I cannot, given the fact that God sees their hearts when we cannot, and we may want to give them the benefit of the doubt and go, well, maybe it's not so bad. He's going, no, listen, I see their hearts. It is that bad. And Moses, we have to destroy them because they've already made their choice. Now, here's the thing. is, is it's, it's rare that I disagree with like every commentator on something, okay? It's, it's happened a half a dozen times, maybe. I literally disagree with like every commentator I've ever read on this. Because what you have probably been taught, if you've ever heard uh, of this passage before, and if you've ever gone to do your own study, they all say the same thing as if they're brainwashed. Now, here's the thing. Maybe I'm just the one who's wrong, but I don't see it. This is what they say. Well, God never actually wanted to destroy the nation of Israel. He was just saying that so that Moses would then intercede for his people. And, and here's what I would just say to that. I don't think the text says that. I think, I think you're afraid to say that God wanted to destroy people. I think that's what it is. Because God literally looks at Moses and basically says, don't try to talk me out of this. What do you say? Leave me alone that I may burn in my anger against them for they are obstinate people and I will destroy them. And I will start fresh with you. God is never, listen to me, going to test you by trying to get you to disobey what he's telling you to do. God is never going to say, leave me alone when he's trying to get you to not leave him alone. He doesn't work like that. He's never going to say, I want you to go to the nation of Egypt or the nation of whatever, India. He's never going to say, I want you to go to India. But he's really got this secret like agenda going, I hope he disobeys me and doesn't go to India. That's what I want. That's ridiculous. Can we just raise our hand? That's ridiculous. God was very clear. They're hard-hearted. They're a nation of pharaohs. You saw how hard it was to deal with one hard-hearted pharaoh? Imagine a nation. And he goes, leave me alone, Moses. I'm pretty angry. 
We just did this. We just did this dance. I just gave them the law. They just signed up because I got to start over. I am convinced that God genuinely was going to destroy the people. Now you got to wrestle with that. The reality is the God who gives life is also the God who takes life. You just have to wrestle with that. You're not going to get very far in the Bible without seeing that truth come to pass. But I'm convinced that God actually did want to destroy them. But look at what happens. This is 11 through 14. Then Moses entreated the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them? from the face of the earth. Turn, Lord, from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all the land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. So let's just play the scenario out. Let's let the text read it. Let's try not to have a lens. They're in major sin. They're hard-hearted. In other words, they have no more faith. It's gonna take faith to do what God just told them to do, which is to go to the promised land. They have no faith. So God said, all right, the whole plan's a little messed up, Moses. They were supposed to have faith. They were supposed to get it. They didn't get it. So because of their own free will, They've made their choice. I'm going to destroy the nation. Leave me alone that I may burn in my wrath against this hard-hearted people. And so Moses comes on the scene and he goes, no, Lord, please don't do it. And do you remember what he says? He says, remember your promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that's Israel. He says, remember that you said you would make them a great nation. Right? And he starts to, to throw the promise of God back into his face. And listen, if you read the commentators, they're like, Moses is the hero, God's the villain. And this, this is literally, they're like, they're like, God wanted to do something bad, but he didn't really want to do something bad. And so he was trying to trick Moses into doing this little prayer thing. And then Moses' prayer, oh, that's the way that we should pray. Because Moses was like, Lord, remember your promise to your people. But he didn't forget the promise to his people. Because what did he say to Moses? Leave me a note. Leave me, we're going to start again with you. In other words, the promise is still on. God was fully aware of the promise. And Moses is like, no, Lord, but remember what you said to Abraham that you'd make him a great nation. He's like, I just said I'd make you a great nation. The promise is still on, dude, but they don't have the faith to make it happen. And so we got to destroy them so we can move the ball a little bit forward. But Moses chooses the fear of man over the fear of God. Because do you notice that what Moses actually says, he doesn't ever say, Lord, I love these people. Please don't kill them. He didn't say that. He doesn't even say it's not just. Here's what he says. He says, why should everybody else look at us and be like, your God's a jerk? Why should everyone look at us and say, well, you brought us out here to kill us, Lord. Think about what the everyone else will say if you do that. Moses is afraid about what everyone's gonna say if God goes through with his plan and he's ashamed. And so he's like, hey, uh, please don't do that. Please change your mind. And God being really kind and being really good changes his mind. And you can say, well, is that possible? Well, the text says God changed his mind. So I'm gonna say that it's possible. I think it's very clear. God goes, I'm going to do this. Moses says, I don't want you to do this. And God says, fine, have it your way. 
Simple as that. I love you. I've warned you. But here's the thing about Moses, guys. Moses has an arguing problem. I love Moses, by the way. I like harp on Moses being like, you know, his, fail, his failures a lot. I do love Moses. But he has a real bad argument problem. Do you remember when God was calling him to ministry at the burning bush? And he was like, mm, I don't want to do this, Lord. And God was like, yeah, no, you got this. It's time. And he's like, no, I just, I mean, listen, I've never been good to speak. Even though Acts chapter seven says that he was like the most awesome speaker ever. He's like, I've never been good to speak. And and my sins kind of disqualified me. And Lord, you probably just chose wrong. And there's like this long, literally, we went through all the excuses that Moses gives as to why he shouldn't go do what God's telling him to do. And do you remember the consequence of that argument? We're gonna tie it all together. God looks at Moses at the burning bush and says this, fine, have it your way. Aaron will be your mouthpiece since you don't wanna be the mouthpiece. Who's responsible for the golden calf? Aaron. He says, fine, Moses, because you continually want to argue with me over what I know, which is perfect, because you want to keep making excuses, because you got to have it your way. I love you. I'm going to help you. and I'm going to be with you. But dude, I'm going to let you have what you want so bad. Give you Aaron. Give him a, we'll make him a leader. We'll see how, that well, how well that went. It did not go well. And so here's Moses again going, Lord, I hear what you want to do. I don't like what you want to do. I want you to kind of take me into consideration here. Isn't this a democracy? God says, fine, I love you. But God told him very specifically what he wanted to do, what God wanted to do. And Moses says, no, I don't want to do that. And so God says, I will change my mind. For you, I will do it. And I'm convinced that it is this moment that sealed Moses' fate. Because if you are familiar with the story, Numbers chapter 20, something remarkable is going to happen. The nation of Israel, who is hard-hearted, who have no faith, they've been led up to the promised land, they sent the spies into the land, and they come back and they're like, nope, God's not real, he can't possibly deliver us from this, even though he gave us over from Egypt, no, we don't have the faith for this, instead let us just go, we'll circle back around towards Egypt. That's what they say, and then, here's the thing, Numbers 20 happens. And in Numbers 20, Moses is finally had enough and he's pissed. They keep complaining. They keep going astray. Their hard-heartedness is now becoming very clear and very evident to Moses. And they start to complain against Moses and they start to complain against God because they're thirsty. And they're like, well, listen, God, God has brought us out here to die. It's the same excuses that they made in the chapters that we've already covered. God's not good to us because he's not giving us water. And so they go to Moses and they're like, you need to go talk to God because things aren't going my way. So Moses then goes to the Lord and he's like, all right, God, what the heck, man? Maybe you were right. They're hard-hearted. I'm angry. Moses, and the Lord goes, okay. Take Aaron's staff. He goes, go over to that rock. Tell the rock to bring forth water. They can, eat from, they can drink from the rock. But Moses is so angry at his people and he's so frustrated at their attitude, and he's so frustrated at their hard-heartedness. And he's probably angry at himself because he's realizing maybe I should have just let the Lord do what he wanted to do. And instead of speaking to the rock, if you remember the story, he hits the rock twice with the staff. He just gets angry and starts trying to break the staff of God over the rock. And God's response to Moses is, because of what you've done, because of your disobedience, you will not go to the promised land. 
And Moses would end his life on a mountain overlooking the very land of promise that he forfeited because he chose the fear of man over the fear of God. And I'm convinced, I am convinced if Moses had have just said, okay, I'll leave you alone, Lord. I don't agree with it. From my vantage point, that looks really extreme. But I, I bow in humble submission to whatever you want because you see perfectly and I don't. I am convinced that Moses would have made it to the promised land. But he didn't. Isn't that fascinating? Now, again, I got, my disclaimer is that nobody believes that, right? Everything that I just said, every commentator is like, no, God would never do that. I just, I'm trying to let the text, if I just read the text for what it is, that makes the most sense to me. God said, leave me alone. Moses said, no. God said, let me destroy them. Moses said, no. He goes, fine then. But it's not going to end well for you because you can't lead people who are faithless where we're going and you can't lead people who are hard-hearted, Moses. So let's continue in the narrative. Moses has just heard that the Lord's changing his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. And it says this, it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses's anger burned. A little hypocritical, I think. He was just telling the Lord to calm down. He sees the golden calf. He gets angry and it says, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. So now he's so mad, he's throwing things again. He's so mad that he takes the very word of God and he breaks it at the mountain. And it says, and he took the calf which they had made and he burned it with fire. Good for him. He ground it to powder. (laughs) This is really bad. And he scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. It's the original soap in the mouth. So what's happening? He's so mad. He breaks the word of God at the very place where he encountered the Lord. He takes the idol, burns it, grinds it into powder, puts it in the water, and then forces them to drink it. I'm just saying, I think Moses was a little bit of a hypocrite. Don't be mad at him, Lord. He's a little pissed. Here we go. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? So he goes to the leader. He goes straight to the leader. And look what Aaron says. I, um, this is our high priest, ladies and gentlemen. Well, not really our high priest. He was their high priest. Jesus is our high priest. Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me. <laughs> so they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. That's word for word. So, so it reads like so proper and choppy, and then you get to that. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. It just happened. I don't know what happened. They were like, make a god for me. And I was like, oh, go gold, and I threw it in there, and all of a sudden, this demon came out. I don't know what to tell you. That's what happens. Aaron makes excuses. Instead of owning it, instead of being like, dude, I totally goofed. I am so sorry. 
I was scared. They were surrounding me with pitchforks. You were nowhere to be found. I'm so sorry. I realize now, hindsight 2020, that was bad. But I, I didn't know what to do and I panicked. I'm sorry. Didn't do it. Instead, he begins to make excuses and he lies worse than my five-year-old does. I don't know. I just threw it in there and it came out. The observation I want to make about his response is that he makes excuses. And that's what we don't do. As Christians, and I want to talk to you as men, especially as men, we don't make excuses. Nobody's counting your sins at gatekeepers. And here's the good news. If you're born again, the Lord's not counting your sins. But what he cares about is your heart posture. Do you own it? Do you take responsibility for it? And you say, God, I really messed up. I'm sorry. I don't care if you have to do that for the same sin for 30 years. That's a good heart posture to have. I wish and hope and pray that you get breakthrough in whatever that is for 30 years, right? But listen, I'm just telling you, as Christians, we own our sin. We don't try to distance ourselves and go, eh, I don't know what happened. And this is the same thing that you see Adam do. If you guys remember, remember when Adam sins, right? Sees the fig, you know, sees himself naked, puts the fig, fig leaf on him, and then he goes to hide to the bushes. God calls him and he pursues him. And, and God goes, oh, Adam, what did you do? And Adam immediately blames God. Aaron blames the people. Adam blames God. He goes, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit to eat of it. I just ate. I just did. Listen, I was honoring my wife. He makes excuses. And I've always wondered, I don't have any Bible to back this up. So let me just be super clear. This is like super opinion territory. Everything else I think I've had pretty clear Bible on, this is opinion. I've just always wondered if Adam had just owned his sin and said, Lord, I'm so sorry. I did exactly what you told me not to do. It's my responsibility. It's my fault. And I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I've just always wondered if God wouldn't have been like, oh, that's okay. We'll start over. But instead you see sin being destructive and deceitful and immediately it comes up and starts to blame shift and starts to make excuses. And you and I, we don't do that. So when you sin, whether it's against God alone or against somebody else, you just need to own it. That's okay. That is like to be championed. I was just talking to my, um, my cousin and she's got some, some young boys and, and one of them, um, they got into some stuff on the computer that they shouldn't get into. Probably not quite what you're thinking, but they, they just got in some stuff that they shouldn't get into. And, and he um, went to his mom and, and he told her. And she was like, she was kind of concerned because she was going, oh my gosh, you know, he's my, he's my little boy. And, and you know, he's, he's already starting to, to, to get exposed to this world. And I don't want him to get exposed to this world. And, and I just kind of stopped her for a second. I was like, hey, just remember that this is a huge win because it's not a matter of if he gets exposed to this world. It's a matter of if he has a soft heart. And the fact that he was like, mom, I'm sorry I did this and I shouldn't do that, that's to be celebrated. And I'm just gonna tell you, some of you guys, you're afraid that God's not gonna celebrate your, your, pen, your, pen, your penance. You're afraid that God's gonna look at you and be like, how could you do that? And really what God's looking at, he's going, I love your soft heart. Keep at it, keep confessing, keep repenting, keep pursuing breakthrough. I got you. When you have an issue is when you stop. You stop confessing, you stop feeling bad when your heart gets hard and you become like the nation of Israel. The story would conclude, I would just encourage you to continue to read through Exodus 32. And um, it's interesting because here's how it concludes. Moses calls forth, he says, 
He says, everyone here who's for the Lord, come forward. And the people who come forward, I think I mentioned this in the last sermon, were the Levites. They were what was going to be the priestly tribe. And he hands them a sword. And he says, everybody who was in charge of this, everybody who gave themselves over to this, he says, we have to get rid of them. And they literally, these priests, go on a killing spree. And it's part punishment, but it's not even really punishment. It's actually, for the sake of the flock, the wolf has to be cut out. If you don't deal with the wound, it will infect the rest of the body. And so they're trying to do damage control, but the reality is you can't damage control a bunch of hard parts. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.